The large medieval crowd had come back to a place they knew all too well. It was the place where the future king of the land would one day be revealed, and the long-suffering kingdom would finally know peace. Time and again, a man would attempt the challenge and fail. The citizens bowed their heads in sadness and shame, much as the men did when they failed the test. A boy in the crowd watched the spectacle. He was neither sad nor afraid. He was bewildered. He asked himself why this was still happening. Without thinking, he walked slowly over to what was jokingly deemed the place of failure. People began whispering to one another and pointing. Some began to laugh. What was a child doing here anyway? But as the boy took his place, the jokes stopped. The voices ceased. As if by magic, their eyes and mouths hung open wide in amazement. The boy gripped the sword with a confident hand, and, with a gentle pull, the future king of Britain freed the sword from the stone. Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Over the course of this season, we'll explore the lives of five men who each exemplified a crucial virtue of life with not just their words, but their actions. From these men, we hope you will learn that a life of virtue is something you can achieve, no matter the obstacle. Welcome to Episode 6. The Equality of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, featuring special guest Stephanie Barshevsky, author and professor of history at Clemson University. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is equality. Over the years, equality has come to be defined and redefined to fit the current age. To many, it is defined by financial, social, and political opportunity. But the true greatness of this virtue is that it is not concerned with the quality of a man's abilities, social standing, race, wealth, or appearance. Rather, it looks at the quality of his character to see if he is worthy of responsibility, power, and influence. In the eyes of equality, nothing matters more than a man's character and his willingness to protect it from compromise. Equality asks us not only to look at ourselves, but to look at others with the same perspective. It tells us, look not at his power, look at the man. Perhaps the most famous example of equality is found in the legendary tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. In this episode we will explore the history behind these myths, how this group of men came to reach true equality, and how that equality was tragically lost. Part 1. 
the history. Arthur, Lancelot, Guinevere, Merlin, the Holy Grail, the Round Table. These names are as familiar to our modern world as in the world for which they were written. They conjure in our minds visions of noble knights, Edenic kingdoms, courtly love, and the great virtues of honor, chivalry, and heroism. For centuries we have been drawn back to the world of Camelot, the king who ruled it, and the knights who served his kingdom. Though the story is familiar to us all, the reality behind the myth is as intriguing as it is mysterious. Real-world events and numerous writers have all played a role in shaping the myth into what we know today, and help to explain why its unique vision of society continues to endure and inspire. The Arthurian legend emerges out of this very murky, shadowy period um, that I, you know, think historians used to call the Dark Ages, although that's very unfashionable now to call it that, right? So, um, but it's it's it, it emerges in a British context um, out of this period, you know, roughly between say 400 and 700 A.D. when the Romans um, depart, right? The Romans don't just up stakes and up stakes and leave one day, right? It's a gradual process, but we can pinpoint about 400 A.D. is when the Romans start to depart, and with them goes, you know, Roman systems of governance, Roman systems of order, and you know, again, without going, you know, down this road of it's the Dark Ages and everything's chaotic and terrible, right? But it's but it's a big change. So it's the transition from the Roman to what we would call the Saxon period. And there is certainly, I think it's safe to say, a little bit of a crisis of order. With the emergence of the Saxon period, numerous battles were fought and subsequently recorded. In the chronicles of the battles, there are a number of figures who are believed to be the possible figure that inspired the creation of Arthur. One of the most likely candidates was the hero known as Ambrosius Aurelianus, who led a British force against the Saxons in the first historical event connected to Arthur. He's not mentioned by the kind of big medieval chroniclers, these early medieval chroniclers, so people like Bede and Gildas don't, don't actually mention him. We do get a few mentions in some more obscure Welsh chronicles. He starts to pop up in connection with a specific historical event for the first time in connection with this battle that takes place around 520 AD called the Battle of Baden Hill. That's between the Celts and the Saxons, right? So the, the Saxons are moving in from continental Europe first into southeastern and eastern England. They're then pushing west, right, and then pushing the Celts, um, you know, in the same process that had already happened with Romans, right, pushing the Celts to the kind of northern and western fringes of the Isle of Britain. And there's this battle around 520, um, and Arthur on the Celtic side um, fights in this battle. So he's mentioned by these by these uh, Welsh chroniclers. And by the 7th century AD, we've got him, you know, he's, he's being mentioned very frequently in um, Welsh poems and Welsh chronicles as this kind of powerful military leader. So that's kind of the beginning of the legend. The first recorded person to name Arthur was the 9th century Welsh monk Nennius, who recorded that the hero's name was Arthur in his Historia Britonum. The text mentions 12 battles that Arthur supposedly fought in, though this was a historical and logistical impossibility. By the writing of Nennius's text, Arthur was a prominent figure among Welsh poets, and the literary groundwork had been laid for one of the most prominent and influential Arthurian authors. He was known as Geoffrey of Monmouth. 
Little is known of his life, though he is believed to have been born right before 1100 AD near Monmouth, Wales, which he frequently mentions in his writings. In the years between 1129 and 1151, he became a cleric and eventually an ordained priest shortly before his death in 1155. During this time, he wrote the immensely popular work The History of the Kings of Britain. A mixture of real history and outright fabrication, it provides a fleshed-out telling of Arthur's life and introduces certain key figures in Arthurian legend. Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon, the prophet Merlin, and the traitorous nephew Mordred. Though now dismissed as historically unreliable, Geoffrey's work provides a pivotal example of something that had always been, and would always be, present in the telling of the myths, an author's use of the legend as a political tool. I think very quickly it starts to be shaped to suit, you know, much more specific purposes. So it gets away from, from whatever that kind of origin point is pretty quickly. The legend becomes something that's, a, you know, it's a political tool, right? It, it starts to be used very much, um, sometimes by, you know, for very specific political purposes. So for example, in the 12th century, we get Geoffrey of Monmouth, right? The very famous Welsh chronicler, using it basically to kind of endear himself to and to praise the Normans, right? The Normans have come in in 1066, they've, they've conquered the Saxons. The Normans are trying to use various cultural means, you know, it, it happens typically in these cases to kind of show that their conquest wasn't just one of brute force, that it was actually, you know, something good and benevolent and justified. Uh, and so Geoffrey of Monmouth gets kind of tangled up in this project and he starts using the Arthurian legend to kind of try to flatter the Normans, you know, kind of comparing Arthur to uh, Norman rulers and things like that. So, you know, I, I think pretty quickly, you know, it, it's, it, you know, it's almost like, you know, I, I think that I think it was Voltaire, right, who said that thing about, you know, if, 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 if God didn't exist, that, that man would have to invent him, you know, and, and I think Arthur is a little bit of that same thing, right? Geoffrey is definitely picking up the Arthurian legend. Um, you know, he, he's recognizing the way the wind is blowing, right? He wants to be on the winning side and he recognizes the Normans are going to win because they, they usually do. Um, and he he wants to make sure that he is on the right side. And so he's picking up the Arthurian legend for that purpose. Yeah, we can't look at Jeffrey at all, I think, as, um, you know, as a chronicle of history, right? That, that's that's really not what his what his famous work is at all. But it's but it's no less interesting for what it is. It tells us a lot about history, even though it's not a very accurate depiction of history, I would say. After the history of the kings of Britain, King Arthur was firmly established as a legendary figure. The tales eventually made their way across the sea to continental Europe, where they were further developed by writers of other countries, notably Germany and France. One of the most important of these writers was the 12th century French poet and troubadour Chrétien de Troyes. Very little is known about his life, though he was known to have prominent patrons of France's Champagne County. With his five King Arthur stories, which some consider to be the precursor of the modern novel, he would go on to be considered the father of Arthurian romance. Chrétien introduced some of the most familiar elements to the legends, especially the figures of Lancelot and Guinevere, and the quest for the Holy Grail. One of the most significant achievements of Chrétien and the other continental European writers is the stories becoming less about politics and more about narrative storytelling. The tales become less about the king himself, and more about the characters that surround him, each with unique traits and character arcs. 
Between the 12th and the 15th centuries, right, the Arthurian legend, the main development of the Arthurian legend moves to the European continent, right? So it's not just French, it's also, you know, Wolfram von Eschenbach and, and those German versions of the legend as well, right? So it's 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 shifting into, and then and then we definitely get this kind of continental evolution of the legend. You know, it's, it's taking on a different purpose, right? I, I think to me, the thing that the, the French and German versions bring is it's no longer the story of, you know, initially it's a story of a powerful warrior, then it becomes a story of a powerful king. Well, then it becomes a story of a royal court, right? And we start to get the Knights of the Round Table. We start to get this broader introduction of characters into it. Um, so it's not really a story about Arthur himself, and it's not really going to be, right, for the for the kind of rest of its history. It's interesting that, you know, we call it the Arthurian legend, but, you know, the, in, in many of the famous versions of the story, and, you know, and I think when we get to the 19th century, right, Tennyson really struggles with this, is, is Arthur is not very central to it um, in a lot of ways. It really is the other characters. I think as you start to depict the royal court, you start to introduce each other characters, then, then again, it becomes a very different story from just, you know, powerful king. So Arthur starts to kind of recede um, in importance, and then you you start to cast other knights. So, you know, what are you going to do? Well, probably initially you're going to get bad knight and good knight, right? So Lancelot becomes, and that's and that's a natural invention, right? Is the you know, greatest knight ever. He can joust any, you know, anybody off their horse. I mean, he's... Um, and then, yeah, I think at some point you're better writers, you know, like, like Chrétien. They're going to say, hmm... Like this is getting kind of boring. There's too many perfect people in this story, right? We got we got to mess this up somehow. Well, what are we gonna do, right? Well, oh, you know, I got it. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce something really, you know, really spicy into this, right? Um, and, and so you, you start to create the the the, the you know the, the the kind of adultery story starts starts to emerge. It was also during this time that the poet Wace added other well-known details to the story. Like many of his contemporaries, little is known of his life apart from various biographical details. His most well-known work is the Roman de Brut, which was based largely on Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. Wace is the first known author to not only mention the sword Excalibur by name, but also the first to mention the Round Table, the symbol of equality that many believe to be the most endearing symbol of Arthurian legend. The table would become pivotal to the Arthur stories, with many of them beginning with Arthur and the knights seated before it, demonstrating that no one was higher or lower than the other, not even the king himself. Through the use of narrative structure and the emphasis on other characters, Chrétien and his contemporaries also began to add themes that would eventually become synonymous with Arthurian legend, ideals of chivalry, courtly love, and equality. These authors also added some darker elements to the tale, with episodes of incest, murder, betrayal, and adultery taking prominence in the narrative. Thus the tale becomes less about a warrior king, and more about how a king creates and loses a kingdom that is too good to last forever. It's not sustainable, and again, it wouldn't. It would be a very boring legend if it if it was in some ways, right? If it was just a story of you know, again, perfect king accumulates round table of perfect knights. Perfect knights go out and do perfect things, and the kingdom lives happily ever after in a perfect way, right? That that's not a great story. I do think it's interesting though that the ways that it gets unperfected, like they're they're pretty nasty, right? I mean, I mean, yes, this this proves the ultimate undoing, right? It's Arthur sleeps with his half sister and produces, you know, this son who then, you know, comes and, and topples Arthur from the throne um, in the end. And that's that's pretty that's pretty nasty stuff in a way. Um, so I think we forget sometimes because the Arthurian legend, you know, it seems kind of sparkly, right? It's 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 this, you know, it is this you know wonderful kind of chivalric story and there's all this nobility in it. 
Um, and, you know, and even the Lancelot and Guinevere thing, there's moral agony about it, right? So it, it doesn't quite, but, but you know, but, but, but yeah, the Mordred part of the story is, is, is just flat nasty. It, it's, 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 it's a really stark ending to this attempt to create and what, you know, and what has been this very, you know, this kind of very beautiful society of the Knights of the Round Table. The addition of these elements and themes were not only used for literary purposes, to make the story more interesting and resonant, but to show the reader how one should properly live and behave. It was also during this period that Christianity and all its morals and values became firmly embedded in the myth itself. They are they're trying to introduce, you know, these these courtly ideals, these chivalric ideals into kind of various mythologies with an idea of, of trying to basically get, you know, rich people to behave better. Right. I mean, you know, they're sort of running around and using force. Right. Might is right um, to kind of get what they want. And so I think that, that these that these continental versions of the legend are trying to introduce codes of behavior into various European elites to try to get them to stop doing that. Right. And, and, and to behave behave, um, to behave better, right? To, to have kind of, you know, abstract codes of, of chivalry and justice and fairness that will, will stop them from, from kind of exercising brute force so blatantly. You're getting these specific Christian elements, and I do think it's part of this process. We could almost call it the kind of moralization, right, of, of the Arthurian legend, um, which again is not really there until these kind of 12th, 13th, 14th century kind of European versions. I, I think it becomes, you know, more a kind of societal code, and I, and I think the religious aspects of that are, you know, it's something that's almost being, again, in a world where you, you don't have a lot of enforcement, right, of, of kind of, again, how, you know, wealthy and powerful people are supposed to behave. So this idea of the kind of looming judgment of God over them becomes, you know, becomes another thing to try to you know to try to get them to uh, behave so I, I do think that these these overtly Christian elements which you know again in some ways I think have, have kind of dropped back out of the legend a little bit today um, but I think they're very very important really from the Middle Ages you know again all the way through to the kind of the end of the 19th century the political turmoil of the 15th century would give rise to what is widely regarded as the definitive telling of the Arthurian legend after emerging from the Hundred Years' War, England was thrust into the chaos of the Wars of the Roses. During the fighting, a knight named Thomas Mallory was imprisoned multiple times and known to switch allegiances between the warring houses. His identity has never been confirmed, as there were numerous knights with the same name from different regions. In 1470, while supposedly still in prison, he completed the great work known as La Morte de Arthur, or The Death of Arthur. Like previous Arthurian authors before him, Mallory used the myth as a means to comment on the tumultuous time of his age, but was also using it to fulfill his own literary ambitions. It was the first English prose version and full chronological telling of the Arthur legend. Upon its publication, La Morte de Arthur would be highly influential on all future writers of Arthurian literature. Mallory comes in in the 15th century, right? He, he's essentially um, frustrated, right? The, the England in the 15th century is torn apart by the Wars of the Roses, right? So you've got these, these powerful aristocratic and, and royal families fighting against each other. It's bloody, right? Civil wars are always very bloody um, and, and the Wars of the Roses are no different. So Mallory is very frustrated with that, right? It's not quite an allegory of the Wars of the Roses. I don't, I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's that. I don't think you can point to kind of specific characters and say, oh, you know, here's a, here's a, you know, here's a York and here's a, you know, it's, it's not quite, you know, white rose versus red rose kind of stuff. But I do think that he's, he is painting this picture of, of a, you know, of a, of a society kind of torn apart by civil strife and then trying to identify the Arthurian legend 
as something that can impose order. And I, and I think it takes off. And one, I think it takes off because it's really powerful prose, right? I mean, I think, you know, there's this sort of golden age of English literature that's really going to culminate in Shakespeare, right, a, a century later. And I think that, you know, the, 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 the expressiveness of the English language is really coming into, you know, coming into force in a big way in this period. And, and, and Mallory, I think it's very, very powerful. You know, English to me, right, it's not, it's not necessarily a pretty language, right? It's not French, you know, it's not, it's not Italian, right? But I think when it's at its best, you know, there's a reason why there, you know, there is there is so much great, you know, English literature, right? Because because I think it's a really powerful language, and I think this is the period when when it really starts to come into its own. You know, it's it's, it's a language that is capable by the 15th century of really packing a punch in a literary context, and I think Mallory deploys it very effectively in that way. I mean, I think Lamar to Arthur is is the most overtly political version of the Arthurian legend in a, in a British context since Geoffrey of Monmouth. Um, but I think I think it's also that Mallory just happens to, in writing about his own frustrations with his own time, you know, he hits on these kind of universal themes of the desire, you know, again, the desire for order, the desire for, you know, a kind of powerful central government, right, that can come in and, and, and keep order and, you know, restore order and keep order. Um, I think these are universal themes that Mallory, you know, because he's, you know, he is writing in a very specific context, but I think Lamorte to Arthur really transcends that context. And I think that's why it's much stronger not being like a literal allegory for the Wars of the Roses, but just dealing with these kinds of themes, right? Of kind of chaos and order. And I think that again, is gonna be a really, if I had to pick probably a dominant theme in the Arthurian legend from the 15th century onwards, I, I think it's, you know, it's kind of order versus chaos, right? Is, is really what it's all about. Mallory's work was a bestseller during its time, being reprinted and illustrated numerous times. But eventually, with the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation ushering in shifting cultural interests and changing religious ideals, the Arthur legend fell out of popularity. It was not until the 19th century with the emergence of Romanticism and a newfound interest in the Middle Ages that Arthurian literature was revived. One of the central figures in this revival was the poet, Alfred Lord Tennyson. Tennyson had always been fascinated by the Arthur myths and had long wanted to turn it into something substantial. After a hugely successful career and coming under the patronage of Queen Victoria herself, he was given the chance. He took the legend and turned it into a 12-book epic poem called the Idols of the King. In addition to taking the myth back to its poetic roots, he was also trying to apply it to the ideals and values of Victorian-era England. There's been a general revival, you know, really from the late 18th century onwards. I, th I think as, as, as Britain starts to become, right, the Britain that is the most powerful, you know, the Britannia that rules the waves, right, the Britain that is the most powerful nation in the world. So, we, you know, we might time that, we might say the Seven Years' War, which ends in 1763, really kind of cements Britain as, you know, arguably the most powerful nation in Europe, but France is still a rival. And then when, when they win the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, then there's no argument, right, that Britain is the most powerful nation in the world. And I think along with that goes, goes a search for very specific national stories and national mythologies, right? That, that I think prior to the end of the 18th century, the British rely a lot on kind of classical mythology, right? They're, they're happy to take stuff from ancient Greece and Rome. Well, I think after that, after the late 18th century, they want their own stories. Tennyson comes along, right, as the greatest author, you know, he's Poet Laureate, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's the, you know, most famous author of his day, really. Um, and, and he tries to, you know, create this kind of Arthurian epic. 
And he wants to craft this this story that you know that has meaning for people in 19th century Britain, you know. And so you might say, well, okay, the, you know, the the you know the, the Knights of the Round Table, it's great, right? Because they're these sort of knights going out to bring truth and justice and good things to the world, right? So what better metaphor for the British Empire in the 19th century? The problem is though. Um, that because of the kind of you know moral failings at the court in Camelot, right, the whole thing falls apart. Right? It doesn't. It doesn't work. So I would argue that in Tennyson's case, I don't think it transcends its time very well. Right. I think Tennyson is trying to create this this kind of moralistic Victorian epic. But you know, the Arthurian legend doesn't work very well for that, right? Because there's some really ugly stuff in it. I mean, Lancelot and Guinevere. You know, it's not. It, it's hard to do with it to, to make it into this this the, the story that Tennyson wants to shape it into. So I think he really struggles with it. I think it's interesting as a struggle to try to to try to craft it. But I think I think the Idols of the King is is kind of fatally hampered in the end by its kind of Victorianist. I, I don't think like Mallory that it does manage to transcend its own time all that well. Despite the problem of reconciling the Victorian age with the myths of the past, Idols of the King was a success. It brought Tennyson further renown and helped re-establish King Arthur as a legendary British hero. The Arthur legends have remained popular ever since, and continue to be adapted to cinema, radio, television, and other works of literature. Nearly a thousand years of wars, cultural shifts, changing ideals, and ways of life have persisted into our modern age. And yet the tales of Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table, and all that they symbolize refuse to be forgotten. Despite the story's tragic arc and moral failings of the characters, the vision it gives us of what society could be when virtue is held in highest esteem will forever draw us back into its timeless world. Obviously, it's persisted because it's 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 highly adaptable, right? It's a it's a basic story um, of a great leader, you know. So I, I think the adaptability. I think again that these these themes of you know kind of order versus chaos, um, you know, and we, you know, that's that's something that's that's not irrelevant, right? Even in in modern political context, um, you know, and then ideal versus reality, right? And I and I think it, it just comes back to the sort of those themes over and over again. Everything about the Arthurian legend is really it's it's really powerful, right? I mean it's 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 big mythology, right? There, there's nothing there's nothing little about it. There's nothing, you know, it's it's always a big story. And so it's not surprising in some ways that the stuff that happens that that brings it all brings it all down is big as well. That name lives on as this kind of royal ideal. Um, and, and as much as the legend undermines that in a lot of ways, right? I mean, Arthur isn't a great king, right? He, he you know, I mean, I mean he, he, he makes, you know, some bad decisions. Um, you know, again, there's the whole incest thing. And then, and then there's the fact that, you know, his, his, his wife is not faithful to him, right? Um, and, and so, you know, he's not a great king, but we need him to be a great king, right? And and I think that's, you know, that's really what we want, but then I think we, we recognize the sort of impossibility of it, and I think that's another reason why the legend is so powerful. You know, he's 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 always with us, you know, I think, I, you know, there, there are a few myths that are more enduring, right? Um, and more, just more, um, you know, yeah, more, more sustainable, more adaptable, more, you know, that's just, just keep keep evolving in really interesting ways. Part 2. The Myth Now let us speak of those who once were, and leave aside those who still are. 
So it is my pleasure to relate a story worth listening to about the king whose fame spreads near and far. And I do agree with the belief of so many Britons that his renown will last forever. Thanks to him, people will recall his chosen knights, fine men who strove for honor. Chrétien de Troyes. In the land of ancient Britain, there dwelt a powerful king named Uther Pendragon. Though he was a beloved king, he held within his heart a forbidden passion. He had fallen in love with Egraine, wife of the Duke of Tintagel. Overcome with lust, he pleaded with the wizard Merlin to aid him in his conquest. Merlin agreed, but with only one condition. Any child conceived of the union would be taken immediately into his care. Uther agreed, and Merlin used his magic to disguise him as the Duke of Tintagel. He found her in the Duke's castle and consummated his heathen desire. The real Duke was killed in a battle between his and Uther's armies, and Uther took Egraine as his wife. Nine months later, a baby boy was born. Merlin came and took the child away to be raised by another lord. Then when the lady was delivered, the king commanded two knights and two ladies to take the child, bound in a cloth of gold. So the child was delivered unto Merlin, and so he bare it forth unto Sir Ector, and made a holy man christen him, and named him Arthur, Sir Thomas Mallory. Shortly after Arthur's birth, Uther Pendragon died of illness. No one knew he had a son, and very soon, conflict erupted between the nobles, dukes, and lords over who would claim the throne. Merlin was once again called upon to find a solution. He placed a stone in the church courtyard, on top of which he placed an anvil. Stuck in the anvil was a majestic sword. Merlin, knowing Arthur was safe, declared that whoever could pull the sword from the stone would be the rightful king of Britain. Though many tried over a period of years, all who attempted the feat failed. With each failure, the kingdom further fell into decay and ruin. Meanwhile, Arthur grew up with his foster brother Kay, never knowing the circumstances of his birth, meeting his true parents, or knowing he was really the son of a king. He met and befriended Merlin at a young age, and Merlin instructed and mentored the youth in all aspects of life. Merlin brought Kay and Arthur to the sword and the stone. A large crowd had assembled, expecting to see what they had seen hundreds of times before. Kay approached the sword and predictably failed to free the weapon. It was Arthur's turn. The crowd fell silent. He slowly approached what was to become the beginning of his destiny. There was seen in the churchyard, against the high altar, a great stone. And in the middle thereof was like an anvil of steel a foot on high, and therein struck a fair sword naked by the point and letters there were written in gold about the sword that said thus, Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king of all England. Sir Thomas Mallory. Arthur grasped the hilt and, with a trembling hand, freed the sword from the stone. The crowd stared in amazement and broke out in loud cheers and applause. Arthur held the sword aloft in the same amazement, realizing for the first time who he truly was and what lay before him.
Arthur was crowned High King of Britain and set his kingdom in the land of Camelot. To emphasize his position and authority, Merlin determined that he needed a symbol. He took Arthur to a lake, and they waited. In the middle of the lake, the misty waters began to stir. The ripples came closer to shore, and from the water emerged the mythical enchantress Nemu, the Lady of the Lake. In her hand she held the most magnificent sword Arthur had ever seen. It was called Excalibur, and it would be the symbol that would forever define his place as king. One night, a woman came to his castle seeking shelter from the bitter cold. Arthur, seeing that she was beautiful and in need, allowed her inside. Though he did not learn her name, he was captivated and impassioned. He stayed with her for the night, and by the next morning, the woman had gone. Eventually, Arthur forgot her, not knowing that she was his half-sister, the evil sorceress Morgan Le Fay. Without Arthur's knowledge, she gave birth to the one who would one day betray him. His name was Mordred, and as he grew, so too did the evil within him. Though Arthur was now king, he saw that he was alone. He had no queen to help him rule and to bear him children. One night, Arthur spent the night at another castle, and as he lay sleeping, he was awoken by the sound of music. He followed it to another room, where he saw a maiden seated alone and playing a harp. Her name was Guinevere. Never before had he seen a woman so fair and so beautiful. Never had his desire and longing for a woman been so strong. He loved her at once. Merlin warned him that marrying her would bring him and his kingdom nothing but misery and misfortune. Arthur ignored his words and chose her to be his queen. Soon after his marriage, the knights in King Arthur's court began to grow increasingly competitive and jealous of one another. To prevent chaos from tearing his court apart, his father-in-law gave him a gift. It was a giant round table with the names of the knights inscribed on the various seats. Though all had different skills and abilities, no one would be higher or lower than the other, not even the king himself. From that day on, all would be viewed and treated as equals but one seat remained vacant. It was the seat reserved for the most perfect of all knights, and any who tried to sit upon it would perish. In our great hall there stood a vacant chair, fashioned by Merlin ere he passed away, and carven with strange figures, and in and out the figures, like a serpent, ran a scroll, of letters in a tongue no man could read, and Merlin called it the Siege Perilous, perilous for good or ill, for there, he said, no man could sit, but he should lose himself. Alfred Lord Tennyson Arthur's kingdom of Camelot was now firmly established. For many peaceful years he ruled with Guinevere by his side, and his knights enacted noble deeds to ensure that peace remained. All was equal, fair, and good. 
knights from all over came to join the round table. One of these was a dashing French knight named Lancelot du Lac. He was a most handsome man, and his skills in combat were said to be legendary. Lancelot asked to be the queen's protector and defender. Queen Guinevere and Lancelot were immediately stricken with one another. After accepting his offer, the two of them fell in love and began an affair, often slipping away into the woods under the cover of darkness. He adored her and knelt down before her. In no saint's relics did he place such faith. The queen held out her arms to him, embraced him, and hugged him to her breast. It was love that made her give him such a joyous welcome. If her love for him was great, his for her was a hundred thousand times more so. For in all other hearts, love is absent in comparison with love's presence in his. So completely did love establish himself again in his heart that for all other hearts he left little. Chrétien de Troyes Arthur was unaware of their trysts, and he remained Lancelot's close friend. Lancelot rose in prominence in the court, and was widely viewed as the best knight at the round table. But his standing would soon be challenged. Lancelot was taken to a nunnery to knight a young man, who some noted looked similar to Lancelot. It was Galahad, his illegitimate son by another woman. The next day, when Galahad was brought to the round table, he learned that he was the one destined to find the Holy Grail. He boldly took his place in the Siege Perilous, and a vision of the Grail appeared in the middle of the round table. It was a sign from above that it was time to begin the quest to achieve the Grail, and to in turn see the greatest knight revealed. Over the course of many adventures and dangers, the knights sought the Grail. Many returned in defeat or strayed from the quest along the way, until only Galahad, Percival, and Bors were left. They eventually found King Pelez in Corbenic, and only Galahad was deemed worthy of beholding the Grail. When he saw it, he was immediately swept up in a trance, beholding visions of wonders and glories too great for mortal man. After seeing the Grail, Galahad perished, knowing nothing on earth could ever hope to satisfy. Sir Percival chose to become a hermit, and only Sir Bors returned to Camelot to tell what had happened. With Galahad gone, Lancelot's status as Arthur's best knight was returned, but this was not to last. Arthur finally discovered Guinevere's affair with his friend, and fell into despair. Lancelot rode away, but Guinevere remained to be taken to court. When she was found guilty of adultery, she was sentenced to be burned at the stake. But before the torches were lit, Lancelot returned, and, after killing some of Arthur's knights, rescued his lover and rode away. Arthur was furious. After placing Mordred in charge of Camelot, he rode with an army to find Lancelot and Guinevere. After long months of sieges and negotiations, Lancelot was banished to France, and Guinevere was taken back to Arthur. But when Arthur returned to Camelot, the worst had happened. The power-hungry Mordred had declared himself High King of all Britain. Both of the men's armies met, and a great battle soon raged. Though many were slain on both sides, Arthur and Mordred remained, 
Arthur saw an opening and picked up a spear. Mordred saw him charge and swung his sword in a mighty arc. The spear impaled Mordred's black heart, and the sword cleaved Arthur's skull in a deadly blow. Though Mordred had finally been vanquished, Arthur lay mortally wounded on the field of battle. As he lay dying, he was taken to the lake from where he had received his great sword Excalibur. The blade was returned to the Lady of the Lake, never to be used by another. As Arthur moved closer and closer to death, three figures seated on a boat emerged from the mist. Then saw they how their hove a dusky barge, dark as a funeral scarf from stem to stern. Beneath them, and descending they were ware, that all the decks were dense with stately forms, black stoled, black hooded, like a dream. By these three queens with crowns of gold, and from them rose a cry that shivered to the tingling stars, and, as it were one voice, an agony of lamentation, like a wind that shrills all night in a wasteland, where no one comes or hath come since the making of the world. Alfred Lord Tennyson The three queens took Arthur and rode back into the mist, bound for the mysterious Isle of Avalon. Lancelot ended his days as a holy man, forever bound to his shame. Guinevere went into a nunnery and lived the rest of her days in quiet sorrow. The once great kingdom of Camelot was gone, but it is said to this day that the great King Arthur is not dead, but merely asleep. And when the kingdom of Britain needs a savior, he will rise again to usher in a golden age. Perhaps once again he will rebuild the glorious kingdom he once lost. A kingdom where love, chivalry, nobility, and equality once again rule the day. A kingdom in which a man is not judged by his might, his strength, or his social standing, but by the quality of his character. And thus begins the tale of old, of warriors true to thy one pure soul, of kingdom ordained like Eden on earth, ruled by king of noble birth of queen so noble, fair, and light, who sold her soul for love so bright, a time of old that could have been when Arthur King returns again. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Scott Einig and edited by Jamie Adams. Additional voices by Stephanie Einig and Jamie Adams. A very special thanks to author and professor Stephanie Barshevsky. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Man on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore man and give us a follow. Tune in next week for the season 3 finale, Loose and Unscripted, where we go behind the scenes and discuss the making of season 3.